This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you from Philadelphia. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show talking about volatility in the markets. How do you navigate that with sort of sophisticated alternative type strategies? Uh, but, Professor, uh, we're going to get your take to start us off on how is this volatility in your mind? It's been a lot of what you've been expecting. Uh, how are you thinking about the, the current sell-off and, and where we are? Uh, yeah, Jeremy. Uh, there, the interesting development, I think, uh, this week um, was what happened with uh, Walmart and then confirmed by what happened to Target. Up till now, we can explain virtually the entire bear market by the Fed's uh, raising of the discount rate. Uh, in other words, that denominator of the va- of the valuation uh, equation. Um, profits uh, were doing extraordinarily well. This is the first time where we really had a miss, a real miss. Um, and um, it, 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 it did send some second thoughts through me about whether we're, uh, you know, I, I started uh, thinking hard. Uh, is this just with the retailers? Did they misestimate the shift to services? Uh, and let me tell you, I've been traveling all this week. I've, I've been to Raleigh, Durham, Minneapolis, Chicago. Um, just got back to Philadelphia this morning. Um, uh, every flight is 100% filled with waiting lists. Uh, even leaving 630 in the morning, it does not matter. Um, I, I've, I've never, I've never seen so much on the travel. Um, so is this a shift in the mix from goods to services of which, of which travel is one of those services, uh, perhaps, but it was surprising that, um, uh, smart retailers like Walmart and, and, and targets, which did of course so very well during the pandemic didn't realize that. People had bought an awful lot of uh, large screen TVs, and maybe they uh, don't want two or three more of them <laughs> uh, at, at this point in time. We're going to have to wait and see. On the whole, 90% of the firms have reported, uh, and, 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 and they have beaten um, uh, on the whole. I mean, the beats are not as quite as strong as they were last year, which was quite extraordinary. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they're fulfilling. There's been, of course, reduced guidance on a few of the firms. This quarter's GDP looks like 2.5%. We're only about halfway through the quarter. We only have data coming in for the month of April. But it's, we're not certainly going to have the negative GDP print that we had in the first quarter. So we're, we are growing at a, a decent uh, rate. However, inflation is still there. Um, I, mean, uh, I mean, I take a look at WTI. Uh, quite interestingly, just this morning um, at 112.73, for the first time in I don't know how many months, it's actually moved higher than Brent, which is the measure of oil delivered in London, uh, in Europe. Um, and, of course, that had always been higher, particularly since the U- Ukrainian situation because of the, uh, the, the, the embargo and shutoffs of the, of the uh, Russian gas. So uh, it, it now uh, WTI, which, of course, uh, uh, gasoline is at an all-time record. Uh, natural gas is holding in at around eight dollars uh, a megatherm. That's going to hit the heating season. We're not going to have a good print on on uh, CPI. All that said, what I'm looking at next week, we will get another monthly money supply figure. Let us keep our fingers crossed and let's hope that moderation uh, that we've seen in the previous two months uh, will continue. Um, that's what the Fed should be looking at. Um, as well as, of course, uh, 
uh, raising the rates. So as you think through this earnings cycle, um, is it how how further beyond uh, when, when you think about what the pressures are going to be? Is, is 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 do you think it's some of the consumer pressures of these higher inflation pressures coming off to less demand there, or do you think it's just the unique nature of the, those businesses? Is that going to be one? Of the, that's going to be the big question for the rest well, of the year, I presume. Uh, certainly, the high gasoline prices uh, impacts lower income individuals and and they are of course more of the the customers of walmart and uh and target so uh you know one could say that that they're getting more proportionately uh impacted uh by these higher energy prices and and that is uh, that is one uh cause there however uh there there also seem to be an inventory problem um, not only unsold goods, but what goods they anticipated people to actually buy and ship to. Um, again, a rare miss on these two retailers who have been really shrewd at uh, detecting where uh, consumers uh, go. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I still think that uh, that this year earnings are going to come in. On the whole, um, and uh, we'll see. But I, 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 I think we've seen that the Fed tightening and uh, what's happened in the markets, the rise in the mortgage rates over five percent. All these has cooled off prices, not going down, but not you know rising at the rates that we saw before. And that, of course, is exactly what the Fed wants to do. And um, uh, again, we don't want them to go overboard. I want them to look at money as well as that interest rates. We'll have a 50 basis point hike to be sure. Um, and we'll see if this continues to moderate uh, some of the, pr- the pressures uh, that we've been seeing. Yeah, you're seeing like quotes from people like Mary Daly say they, they, the tightening of financial conditions is sort of on track, and uh, she, she might actually like to see even more tightening of financial conditions. Is, is do you have a sense? Is there a level that's too much of any, either, either the sell-off, the rise in rates, the mortgage rates? How do you think they can respond to what's happening in the markets? Yeah, and I, I, I think we would look at commodity prices, um, and uh, you know they. The broad-based commodity prices are still moving up, not quite at the rate that they did before. That that's a, the canary in the gold mine. Money supply is another canary uh, in in the coal mine. Um, in, in terms of uh, what I would look at, and I think the Fed wants to tighten more. I mean, I, I, there there is no put here. I mean, we may go into bear. We're not quite in bear market terms in S and P. Of course, we're almost thirty percent down in Nasdaq. Um, uh, the Fed is not worried about that. I mean, it would have to be a much further decline, which I don't anticipate. I I still believe we're probably within 5% of the lows. I mean, looking forward ahead, uh, I I, I see, you know, we've talked about this, price earnings ratio 16, 17 uh, in a still – of extremely low interest rate environment, even with the Fed tightening, uh, is is a long term buy for for equities. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the Fed realizing it was too slow is not going to slow down because you know it, it sees some of these slowdowns already. It's not put, taking the the foot off of the brake yet. They're they're moving forward with two fifties. Then they'll turn around, look at the situation after that, and say how far. How fast do we have to go? And we'll look at commodity price, we'll look at the money supply, and we'll look at other spending patterns. But that is down the road. We're kind of in a holding pattern now. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear you're back on the road as, as aggressive as you were pre, pre-pandemic yeah, this it's week. A good, it's a good feel to be uh, back on the road. I mean, and, uh, you know, to, to, you know, to be live before audiences and actually interact with them, it's, it's it's uh, no one likes to travel anymore. That is a hassle. But once I'm there in front of the audience, I, 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 I certainly find it far more satisfying than certainly a, a Zoom call. Uh, next uh, next month, I have one of those three week t- three uh, city tours. Also, I'll be gone for oh, a week. Okay. 
from from Austin to uh, KC to Chicago. It's like back to the old days. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's hope we all get returned to normal. Uh, things are not totally returning to normal. You know, office space, subway uh, utilization I, I, uh, in in New York is still almost fifty percent below what it was before. They're trying to give out coupons to get people to to go into the subway. The world is definitely. Going, there's permanent changes in the world that that are resulting from the uh, uh, the pandemic. But uh, I'm glad people are up and about and want to go places and and travel and and go out. Well, thanks, Professor. To start the show, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you much. Bye. We are going to now turn the conversation to our guest for the hour. We have Andrew Beer, the founder uh, and managing director of Dynamic Beta Investments, where he's co-portfolio manager of the firm's investment strategy. I've gotten to know Andrew. Andrew, we've probably known each other for a decade, I, I imagine. Um, but it welcome. Is, to, it is definitely a decade. Yeah. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Well, thank you. It is, it is great to be here. And I was just listening to, to Professor uh, uh, Siegel talk. Um, I mean, you know, he's such a legend. Uh, and I remember the 1990s when I was much earlier in my career when stocks uh, for the long run came out and how pivotal that was. And it really reshaped how people thought about timing equity markets. And uh, anyway, it's a privilege to be here with you and, and, and an honor to, to follow Professor Siegel. We're going to have to get you the new edition coming out in September. We've got the sixth edition coming out, so uh, good plug for the book and uh, and the new edition. Um, what, when you when you uh, tell us a little bit about your background, how did you come to f- to found your own firm? Tell us about your your career, uh, wh- wh- how you got to 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 be an entrepreneur. Sure. So um, uh, so I started. Uh, I went. Uh, Basically, very early in my career, I, I graduated from college in the late 1980s, uh, and then by the early 1990s, I had started in M&A investment banking. And you know, at that time, the coolest jobs were to get a job at a place like KKR. You know, that was that was what everybody aspired to. And and I kind of I kind of thought that's what I was going to do. I really liked the idea of being on the buy side, um, uh, and uh, I really liked corporate analysis and thinking about companies. Um, and then I went to business school. And I almost went into the doctoral program at the business school because I got really interested in in some of the academic research that I was reading. And in, ironically, the guy who was the head of uh, the doctoral program at the time said, um, save yourself. Don't do it. That's <laughs> what Siegel said to me fun. 20 years ago. He told me the same thing. <laughs> so, uh, so um, but in my second year, you know, I had no idea what a hedge fund was. Um, and in my second year, one of my professors came up to me and said, uh, you know, there's this this uh, really interesting boutique firm. Uh, it's based right over there in Harvard Square. It was started by a couple of Harvard Business School professors. It's called Balpost, and there's this legendary investor named Seth Klarman, who um, who was the head and portfolio manager. And I reached out and you know was granted an interview. And I just thought everything they were talking about just sounded incredibly cool. It was they were looking at because I, I kind of believe that the markets were were pretty efficient that. And this is in the 1990s. I think they're arguably a lot more efficient today for for reasons we can discuss. But, but you know, they were talking about doing things. They were buying Russian privatization vouchers. They were buying non-performing real estate uh, at a time when few real estate investors were still um, standing. And um, so, having absolutely no idea what a hedge fund was, I got into the hedge fund industry by taking a job there, became a portfolio manager, and then I'd left within several years. I always wanted to start my own businesses. And, um, you know, and one of the things that I took away from my experience at Bellpost was basically that, um, you know, you really want to think hard about getting the area right. And if you get the area right, um, uh, that, you know, can make up for a lot of misses. And so what I've really tried to do, I'm on my fourth business, and each one has been in a different area of the hedge fund space, um, again, trying to figure out not just what strategies are attractive, but also where the world is going and how we can be positioned for it. I think, you know, sort of what Wayne Gretzky said, try to be where the, where the puck is going as opposed to skate, skate to where the puck is going. Well, this is a year where, you know, things beyond the traditional stocks and bonds are, are starting to matter. Uh, and that's some of the types of things that your, your firm focuses on. But maybe, I, I guess, what, what do you see as the key issues for hedge funds, uh, for people investing in them, besides being expensive, opaque, uh, <laughs> tax inefficient? What, yeah. What's the story on hedge funds? 
So, so I, I have a love-hate relationship with hedge funds, having grown up in the industry. Um, uh, and the, you know, the part of it is the guys in the industry are incredibly smart. Um, they often do things that are are truly unique and interesting, and can be incredibly valuable for clients. Um, I've had a, a, you know, I've been a very vocal uh, critic of the fee structures of hedge funds um, because often. Uh, their fee structure is wonderful for the hedge fund managers. And having a guy who started hedge funds, I can tell you they are wonderful for the hedge fund managers. Um, but if things go badly, they're often really bad for clients. And, and um, you know, and, and I wrote a, my first, I think, widely publicized editorial that I wrote was in 2016, where I basically wrote that 80% of the alpha that hedge funds generate goes to managers, not clients. Um, and, um, you know, so what we've done uh, as a business is really try to find ways of, of copying what hedge funds do, but copying it cheaply. And, you know, in a sense, people have said that our firm is, is sort of following like the Vanguard model um, uh, of basically trying to understand uh, if there are areas where you can copy what hedge funds are doing and, and, um, and copy it cheaply, your clients often do better because they're not paying those huge fees. They don't have those high high. Uh, fees and expenses. They don't tie up their money for a period of time. They don't show up wanting to get their money back and finding it's going to take, um, you know, uh, sometimes years to get their money back. And so, um, uh, so you know, I think what, you know, what, what happened, though, in the, in the 2010s was that, honestly, nobody needed hedge funds. I mean, I think if we'd gone back to 2010 and somebody had said the Fed's going to drop rates for the next 10 years and equity markets are going to soar like they do, the obvious answer was just put your money into 60-40 portfolios, and, and that worked incredibly well. Um, I think in the beginning of 2021, we really did hit this regime shift, and and now we're heading in the other direction, and, and I think nobody knows how long it goes on for. When you think about um, those issues and, and trying to get the information from hedge funds in a cheap way, uh, you know, maybe sort of talk through why you think that works, how that, that comes together in, in some of the strategies that you guys are creating? Sure. Um, so, it, it, the, so some of the things that hedge funds do are not that mysterious. Um, some of the things that hedge funds do are relatively mysterious. Um, you can figure out what hedge funds are doing by looking at their recent performance. So an analogy that I would use is is if you came to me and said, um, you know, we've got this great stock picker. He tells us he's a small cap value guy. And you simply just gave us our uh, returns, uh, gave, gave us the, you know, day-to-day returns or the, the, the week-to-week or month-to-month returns. You can run those through risk models, uh, the kind that were originally developed by Nobel laureate Bill Sharp, um, that basically uh, looks at those returns and compares them to a lot of different areas of the markets. And, and the models are very, very good and very accurate. And if, and if, you know, we were talking about that guy and they said, well, he says he's a small cap value guy, but he seems to be incredibly highly correlated to the NASDAQ, it would raise a lot of questions. Or he used to be highly correlated to, you know, the Russell 2000s value uh, subset, and now he's correlated to the growth side. So, um, uh, so, you know, you can, with certain kinds of hedge fund strategies, and, and it works well in, in three areas. It works well with managed futures as a strategy. It works well with equity long short. And it works well broadly with, you know, kind of diversified portfolios of hedge funds. It doesn't work well with most other strategies. And so, you know, so part of what our expertise is, is knowing when it works and, and, and when it doesn't. That's going to be interesting. We're going to drill into, I think, a number of these ideas. We're talking with Andrew Beer, the founder, managing member of Dynamic Beta Investments, about some of the, the unique market environments we are today and, and why you need some unique solutions. Is there anything uh, in addition to the macro? I think maybe we'll, we'll drill into the managed futures as one of the, the most unique things going on in the markets. But, but anything else on the macro that you would say motivates thinking about, about these things today? You said sort of the, the shift, it shifted in 2021, but uh, any other things on yeah, that? So, so um, you know, I, I think one of the things that was Again, I'm not a macro strategist, but I can tell you kind of I, I do talk to a lot of people who spend their days thinking about this. Um, the by the end of 2020, everyone believed we'd have low interest rates forever. And that was driving all sorts of risk taking. People thought the Fed would keep rates low forever. They were going to let the economy run hot, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and we'd gone through years where we had negative yielding bonds. You know, I mean, it, we had 
trillions and trillions um, of, of dollars of negative yielding bonds globally. So there was this incredible distortion that occurred, and, and U.S. tax stocks went up far, far more. When people thought they couldn't go up more than other areas of the markets, they went up even more. And then, then the pandemic hit, and to everyone's surprise, they went up even more. So I think we have a decade of really serious imbalances that built up in the system. And I think the moment that Powell was formally renominated in November, um, he kind of burst out of his dove costume, which I think was important for him to get renominated and became uh, much more of a, a, a Volcker-like hardcore hawk, at least in terms of how he talks about it. And um, and so, you know, I think what's going on in the markets now, this readjustment could go on for years. It could go on for years and years and years. Um, because if we are going to have inflation at maybe not at 8%, but at 4, 5, 6, 7%, it seems insane that the 10-year Treasury would be hovering around 3%. Um, so, uh, so I think I think we could be in for a long period of readjustment, and and regime shifts in particular, for for reasons we can talk about, I think are just incredibly interesting times to invest because that's when all of our behavioral biases come out, and and that influences pricing across markets and also opportunities. So, so let's talk a little bit about managed futures uh, and how you think they the. The investors have looked at them. Uh, you know, I think they became kind of popular after the 2008 bear market, and then right. you know, sort of, managed futures did very, very well during the 08 sell-off. One of the few things that went up a lot, and then sort of straight-up bull market from 2010 onwards. Not a lot of, uh, I guess, great trends or that whips, whipsaws of things going back and forth. What's what's your sense of the investor allocations to managed futures, and and who you know how people should be thinking about them. Sure. So, so, so managed futures have been around since the 1980s, um, and you know, as as a hedge fund strategy. Uh, and the the claim to fame for managed futures is really two things. Uh, uh, and so, we generally say that managed futures, as a hedge fund strategy, or almost as it, it has as much diversification bang for the buck as anything else. It has almost no correlation to equities, bonds, real estate. You name it; it's, it's just it, it marches to its own uh, to the beat of its own drum over time. And the second is, um, you know, is when it makes money, it tends to make money when you need it the most. And so some people call it crisis alpha. So in 2000 through 2002, during the dot com market uh, bear market again, where every month people thought we'd hit the bottom, and then it would go lower. Then we hit the bottom. Then it would go lower. Then it would hit the bottom. During that period of time, managed futures made around 40%. And during 2008, when we went through the great financial crisis, managed futures made around 20%. Um, and so, you know, so, the, so from, a, from an asset allocator's perspective, managed futures should be a meaningful allocation in every single portfolio out there. The problem is that nine out of 10 guys who've invested in managed futures have had a bad experience. Um, and the bad experience can be summed up in two ways. The first is that um, is that there is no single manager managed futures fund that has been able to reliably do better than the rest of the guys around him. And in fact, when they do better, they tend to do a lot worse. Um, and the second is that often fees and expenses consume a lot of returns in the space. Um, so when you talk about the late 2000s, uh, excuse me, late 2010s, uh, managed futures were walking along during this kind of difficult period at maybe 2% per annum. And investors got really frustrated, and a lot of them got out of the space. But managed futures managers were perfectly happy. I mean, the all-in fees of a managed futures hedge funds plus trading costs and everything else is, could be 500 basis points per annum. So a lot. Plenty, of people, plenty of people were making money. It just, it just clients weren't. Um, and so, um, so the... Um, but you know, I think when you but when you take a step back, what the market environments that managed futures tend to do best in is precisely the moment that, that we're in right now. And and so we've you know basically been saying we're living in very trendy times. And again, just for for for, for the listeners to take a step back, managed futures we think are actually pretty simple in what they do, which is that they're looking for the basic idea is that when. Um, when new information comes into the market, sometimes people are slow to react to it. And then when asset prices start to move, sometimes people jump in and push it farther than you might expect. Um, and I think the, the, the fundamental reasons, I mean, back when I started in 
in hedge funds, the, the question was always, why is something cheap? Why is it not priced? And I think in managed futures, you can boil it down to two things. The first is that people hate to change their minds. And so, you know, if you think about it, uh, and I guess the second, and then I'll come back to that, is also then, but and then people hate to miss out on something that's doing well. Um, and so, you know, people hate to change their minds because in early 2021, as we started to see signs of inflation coming in, think about every strategist out there who had told people that inflation was never coming back. Every advisor who had told his clients that they were loading up on ARC because this is going to be a low interest rate market forever and it'd be terrific for tech stocks and everyone was going to stay at home for a long period of time. New information starts coming into the market and people, you know, people don't want to go back to their everyone that they've spoken to over the past three months and say, sorry, I told you that, but, you know, we've gotten some information that I might be wrong. I'm backing off my position. So people tend to lock themselves into a position and then it takes a lot of information to come in for them to actually change their mind. Um, but then once the information starts to come in, then people tend to jump and then, uh, and then, and then take the contrary position. Um, so inflation was a great example of that last year, and now we're seeing it in, in, in different parts of the market today. It just happens to be that the models that managed futures funds use tend to do very well in those environments. It's funny, actually, the last thing I put on Twitter last night was a thread um, from um, a friend, Jim Bianco, who's a, a macro strategist, and he was he was quoting like this B of A manager research survey and talking about how many people are looking at the Fed this year and how many hikes they're forecasting. And even though the Fed has said, you know, exactly what they plan to do, the inflation is, is high, they're, they're going to address the, these inflation issues, still a quarter of the people only think the Fed's going to hike six times in total, um, you know, when they've already started with three. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 so it's exactly your point. And people don't like to change their minds. They're sort of locked into a, a certain sense of the Fed is going to have the markets back in some ways. Well, people, you know, people also think about things, you know, people are you know, real live human investors get very tied to certain numbers. And, and I mean, I, I knew this very well when I was looking at value stocks for Seth Klarman. If, if I bought something at 60 and thought it was worth 100, by the time it got to 80, and I still thought it was worth 100, I thought I had $20 of upside and $20 now of downside, because I knew it could go right back to where we'd originally bought it. And, and it's, it's, you know, whether people get very focused on the number of rate hikes, that we're going to have this year. That none of those are. I mean, Daniel Kahneman in, in Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, I think probably the mo thing that was most instructive for me in reading about it was this idea that when people are asked a really, really hard question, they have a tendency to ask themselves a simpler question that they can answer. And to me, the question of how many rate hikes there are this year is not really the issue. The issue is what's inflation going to be in two years when we get past this. Well, you know, is, is are we going to have 5% short-term interest rates back to where we were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago? Are we going through a, um, you know, is, could the market go down another 50% from here? These things that are kind of way outside of our range of expectations are very hard for us to think about because we're so anchored to, to, to current numbers. And, you know, that, that plays into it a lot. Um, and we've seen that even in the trades that we've seen in our underlying strategies where, the managed futures have hate strategies because they're emotion, uh, emotionless quantitative models have tended to do better than emotional market strategists around calling whether something, you know, whether the yen was going to stop declining at a particular level or would keep going, whether interest rates would keep going up, the two-year treasury would keep going up. And so, you know, there's something as, there's, as a value investor who thinks a lot in those terms uh, to have something in my portfolio that thinks in a completely opposite way than I do, I think it's a very valuable diversifier. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Andrew Beer of Dynamic Bay Investors. We have him for the hour. Uh, we're talking about managed futures in particular uh, to start the show, Andrew. So let's talk a little bit about, you, you talked about how you can glean information from the universe of different hedge funds. And, and when you think about building a strategy for managed futures, and, and you do do this at, at Dynamic Beta, talk through you know how you coming up with formulating your own uh, managed future strategy. What type of information are you gathering from the crowd? What type are you doing your own? Let, let's sort of talk about strategy formulation. 
Sure. So we got into the managed futures space. So by the way, so just to understand, I'm not a managed futures guy by background. There are plenty of people who've been doing this for, for 30 years. We we approached it back in 2015 when we were asked by a large asset manager to, to build a portfolio for them, and we wanted to hedge risk in the portfolio. Hedging risk is really hard. You know, it's really hard. How do you uh, – you can buy puts. You can dive, But all these things tend to cost you a lot of money over time. Uh, so we wanted was a strategy that we could – actually, that would protect capital uh, when we needed it, but that we could also make money while we were waiting, because we didn't think we were smart enough to know when that, that would actually occur. Um, so we looked at building our own strategies. We looked at, you know, seeing what other people had done. We looked at, you know, banks had various kinds of swaps and other things that were suppo- supposed to um, emulate the strategy. And what we basically concluded was um, that there were two issues that we needed to solve. First was that you know, if, if, if you said to us, go invest in value stocks today, and I came back to you and said, I found this mid-cap ENP producer based in Tulsa, in Tulsa. That's my value pick. Right? People would look at you like you're crazy. Right? No, no, no. I meant, I meant value stocks. I, I expect there to be retailers and banks and regional banks and all sorts of commodity producers and all sorts of other things that are, that are you know, part of a diversified portfolio. But the hedge fund world or the, and the liquid alt world is very um, archaic in that people think that, um, you know, I'm going to find the best guy. I'm going to find the only company worth, worth, worth owning. And so what we realized we're much better off looking at a large pool of these guys and just trying to take the average. There are plenty of smart guys in the space, huge resources, but we know that any one of them could be very wrong at any given point in time. Other guys could be very right. So just like diversifying a portfolio of stocks, we wanted to diversify um, across a lot of talented guys in this space. Um, the problem historically in the hedge fund business is that's very expensive. You've got to pay them, and then we would also get paid for doing that. Um, and so, you know, having studied the fund of hedge funds industry a lot, having started actually a fund in the space, um, you know, those costs can really eat into your returns over time. And there were mutual funds that tried to do this in the U.S., and generally they put up 2% returns after 250 basis points in costs. Um, so what we decided to do was take a large pool of these funds and basically say, you know, t- let, let's just look at their recent daily data. So how did they do last Friday, uh, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, et cetera? And look at the recent period of time and basically then compare that data because we know what these guys trade in. We know what drives their returns. If you're looking at, if you want to understand how a big managed futures uh, uh, hedge fund did in April, whether they're long or short, the 10-year treasury mattered. Whether they're long or short, the yen mattered. Whether they were long or short, a you know a thinly traded fixed income instrument in 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 some market doesn't matter. Whether they were you know long or short, the Thai bot doesn't matter. Um, so what you can do is basically take those recent that recent data and just run it through a risk model. And so the strategies that we developed were designed to be very, very efficient. Let's just figure out, are these guys long or short the 10-year treasury and by how much? Are they long or short gold and by how much? What about oil? Um, are they long or short the S&P? Because these guys will sometimes be both long or short the S&P 500. And so the whole model is basically, it's, it's basically taking you know, a, a well-established risk modeling approach and turning it into an investment product. It has a huge advantage in that, if collectively the you know dozens of funds that we that, that that we target end up deciding to be short the 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 10-year treasury a typical investor has to pay everybody one in 20 or two in 20 to to for them to be able to put those on those positions we know how to put on that position ourselves so we just do it directly and cut out all these fees and expenses um so our, all of our strategies are really designed to be we call them actually index plus because in hedge fund land Index-like is when you're talking about, you know, like the S&P 500 consists of 500 companies. Index-like in hedge fund land means a lot of individual uh, funds. Uh, and then plus is because when you can cut out fees. You know, so if, if, every, if the only way to access the, the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 were to go buy hedge funds and pay them 400 basis points a year to do it, and we came along and said, you know, we can just go buy those stocks for you cheaply. We're going to outperform those guys over time. 
when you think about uh, the how often you need to trade these managed futures, uh, I know there's some questions on 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 trade implementation. How how often do you want to update your models? How often are you trading? How much turnover comes through that type of activity? Um, you know, g- give us some sense on that. Yeah, so so managed futures funds do do change their portfolios frequently, um, and so we rebalance once a week. Uh, we could rebalance every day, but you don't really get a lot of benefit, but it increases your trading costs. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that, again, we've been doing this for a very long time, uh, and we've only done three strategies over 15 years. So we really do a deep dive to try to understand all the idiosyncrasies of the strategy. And, and in the manner future space, what I think is well established at this point is that um, is that, yes, the portfolios will change week to week, but they don't change a lot between Monday and Wednesday. And so as it stands right now, given how we invest, we do it week to week. But if we decided that there was a reason or there was a change in how they were investing that we had to do it more frequently, we could do that. When you think about like these these different positions you could get into, how many different uh, things are you trading in this? And you sort of mentioned a number of them from currencies and bonds and stocks. Uh, what, what's, what do you think these allocations will range from um, over time? So in our, in our case, we use, on the managed future space, we use around 10 core instruments. And, and ideally, if you want to do it well, you do need exposure to equities, rates, currencies, and commodities. Uh, and within each of those, you, you need more than one instrument. So again, our, our philosophy is, you know, we're very dogmatic about if we can do something well in a simple and efficient way, we're going to do it that way. Um, we're not kind of bells and whistles, guys. And the, uh, so it's, you know, for us, it's really 10 core positions. Um, and in certain circumstances where, you know, we're dealing with uh, structural constraints, we've actually excluded, for instance, in Europe, we've excluded commodities because it's, it's more difficult to invest in, in, in various structures and commodities in Europe. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the, when you're talking to, one of the things you people like about hedge funds is, is, is hedge fund investors like things where they feel like there is an asymmetrical risk reward in their favor. You want somebody who buys a stock that can go from 10 to 30, but if he's wrong, he's going to go from, from, from 10 to Seven. Um, uh, in when you're talking about fee reduction in certain kinds of hedge fund strategies, including managed futures, um, there is even if we don't capture perfectly everything that they do with a small number of factors, when you're cutting out all those fees and expenses and cutting out maybe 200 basis points of trading costs as well, um, you tend to be so far ahead that you very rarely underperform over any reasonable period. So that's why we coined this expression in 2010, that in hedge funds, fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. And what we really meant was that, that there's this alpha that, generate, that, that, that hedge funds generate, and then you get all these fees and expenses and other things that, that, that knocks that down 80%. Um, the, the smartest hedge fund investors in the world spend a lot of time figuring out how do we, how do we structure the fees in a way that allows us to get more of, of, of the talent of what these guys generate? And, you know, I was quoted this morning about, about a recent hedge fund blow-up where I think, again, allocators made the mistake of just assuming that fees don't matter until it was too late. And, and so they got caught, again, on the wrong side of, of, uh, uh, of sort of an ugly, ugly blow-up. We're talking with Andrew Beer of Dynamic Beta Investments about uh, managed future strategies and some other, uh, I think we'll talk about some other dynamic beta strategies, Andrew. Um, but let me, let's just sort of keep on this managed futures for a second. As, as you think about who this appeals to and, and talk about taking out the 500 basis points of cost from the traditional fund world, is this, do you think the, the pensions and endowments who have been big users of alt-type strategies, um, will this appeal to them, or do they think there's too much, uh, they have too much consultants who like to look at these managers and add value by picking, you know, what they think are sort of top quartile managers, will appeal to them, or is it appealing more to the RIA financial advisor community uh, who, who who might just like that lower fee implementation? So I, I spent all of my time talking to RIAs. Uh, and, and, and model allocators. Um, so institutional consultants find what we do extraordinarily threatening um, because 
a, a typical institutional inv- investor is always a price taker. They, they invest in funds that have been doing really well. For a fund that has been outperforming everybody else over the past five years, nobody cares about fees, nobody cares about terms. They just are, are, are they clamor and fall over themselves to invest in these funds. Um, the reality is that the, th- the three, three strategies that we've launched, um, you know, we are, as far as I know, the only liquid alternative firm that has consistently outperformed real live illiquid hedge funds, but with low fees and daily liquidity across our strategies and actually even better drawdown characteristics. And so if you imagine yourself that you're a, an institutional consulting firm who's been telling people, all of your clients, that you need them to navigate this incredibly mysterious world and get them access to the right funds at the right time, and, uh, and, and some guys come along with a cheap robot dog that does better than their hand-picked stable of greyhounds, uh, they have a huge business problem. Um, and you know, going back to people hating to change their mind, the last thing they want to do is go and say, because... You know, then the obvious question is, well, why do I need you to pick the robot dog? Um, but that being said, look, they'll they'll come around at some point when when you know what we do in the wealth management space becomes significant enough. Um, the but but really, the guys that I like talking to are are wealth managers. You know, these are guys who who are basically wanting to they're building model portfolios, and they say, I want exposure to managed futures, but I want something that I can buy today and own for the next 10 years, and it'll do what it's supposed to do. And that is what they're basically saying is, I want something that is index plus or benchmark plus. Because in hedge fund land, uh, none of us knows which strategies are going to do well over the next three months, six months, year, et cetera. It's, it's you know, every year it's somebody else. But what, what protects you is the benchmark, and the benchmark can either be your best friend or your worst enemy. If the benchmark is up 7 and your guy is down 20, it makes you look bad. If the benchmark is up 7 and the thing that you picked is up 10, well, maybe you didn't pick the guy who was up 20, but you picked something that's outperformed. If the benchmark's down 5 and your guy is down 2 and not down 15, again, it's, it's sort of a defensible as a long-term allocation. So... We think the next wave of these products um, are going to be adopted by guys who have model portfolios. They want to make long-term allocations to a strategy and want to do so through without paying high fees, the liquidity, and other, and other features like that. Yeah, that, that's something even in my model portfolio uh, hat on, we're, we're thinking a lot about these types of alternative strategies and how do you re- replicate these institutional endowment-like strategies with, with, with this type of alternatives, given the, the unique macro environment we talked about. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about your, your uh, long-short strategies and how you think about that. Is it, is it when you think about sort of building the aggregate information from the universe of managers is it is a similar concept and when when you go into the long short or, or what you might call it equity hedge type programs yeah so 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 it, it, it's the same concept um it's actually something we've been doing uh we started in equity long short back in 2012 um but you know what what was always very very obvious to hedge fund managers was that you wanted to get the factor rotations right it wasn't necessarily the language that hedge fund managers used, but back in 2000 through 2002, the hedge fund managers who did well were long small value and short large cap growth. It wasn't that their long stocks didn't go down. Their long stocks went down 40. The rest of the market went down 50, uh, but their shorts went down 80 and they protected capital. Now, that's what really put hedge funds on the map. Um, but within a few years, they shifted. They weren't in that trade anymore because that trade was over and 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 they were buying brick stocks and commodity producers and fertilizer companies. The late 2010s with equity long short was about fangs. It was a very, most of the portfolios were very U.S. centric. Uh, Hedge funds bought very, very early into the idea that the fang stocks were some of the best economic business models they'd ever seen. Um, And with, you know, absolutely unbridled growth and cash flow opportunities. And so they started to buy them uh, uh, very early on. And there are some funds that were emblematic of how, you know, kind of how, how, how deeply these kinds of stocks, um, uh, you know, populated their portfolios. Um, but that those that's shifting now. And we've seen actually people start to move out of tech and start buying value stocks as as, you know, as far back as the, as the third quarter of 2020. And so, 
you know, what we do in our models basically is try to figure out what are the core factor exposures today? Have they, have they dialed back tech and, and added, uh, uh, you know, cheaper European stocks? And the way that we would see that in our portfolios, again, where it's the same basic risk model idea, we're just looking at returns, but again, not of one manager, but of dozens of managers, and basically saying, you know, if, if we see that tech stock exposure has come down or FANG stock exposure has come down, you'll see it as a reduction in, uh, in you know, a simple NASDAQ contract, a cheap and efficient NASDAQ contract. If, if people are buying European stocks, you might see that as an increase in, in a Euro stock contract. So we're not we're not trying to identify the individual stocks. The idea is that is that guys who are looking at the footnotes of companies and interviewing management um, are going to make incremental decisions in their portfolio that result in better factor allocations over time. Um, and so we do that in the equity long short short space as well. And it also works well when you look at you know very broad pools of hedge funds across different strategies. So what's the aggregate, um, I guess, you, in terms of the range of exposures you might have in this equity hedge program? Like what's the most invested, most hedge when you think long, short standpoint um, in, in, in your history? How's it evolved and where is it today? So it, it, uh, uh, it's a very good question. So over long periods of time, it's around 0.4. The beta is around 0.4. Um, and the way that we see it, most of what we're looking at are their net long exposures as opposed to, uh, like back in the early 2000s, you would have seen a long, a big long small cap value and a big small cap growth, large cap growth against it. Um, the As the world has become more institutionalized, you don't see those extremes anymore. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, exposures really peaked uh, toward the end of 2020. And it's the beginning of 2021, where uh, we probably got up to a 60 or 70 percent exposure at that point. And the and 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 what was happening then? And again, a lot of what I do is try to interpret what we're seeing in our models versus what I'm hearing from hedge funds and reading in their letters and so forth. And we at least say net. Let me just interrupt quickly. So, 60, 70 is the net exposure. So you might have some longs or some shorts, or is it anything else to, to describe than what you say, 60? Net. That's right, net. So, and and but you usually our portfolios are. Uh, it would be unlikely for us to be long 100 and short 30. More likely, we're you know we're we're long 65 and short five. That kind of thing. Um, uh, but um, so the but then risk has come down a lot recently, and and in the first quarter of this year, you started to see hedge funds really dialing back risk. So we often have a very interesting window in terms of, in similar to what the prime brokerage houses like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will write about hedge funds and changes in net exposure, we see it in a very, very pure way. And we saw a reduction. Basically, two things worked in the first four months of this year. One was reducing risk in the first quarter before the drawdowns in April hit um, uh, helped. And the second is that they did start to put on inflation hedges last year in areas like rates and currency markets. And we picked that up, and and that ended up offsetting um, uh, uh, what otherwise would have been larger losses on the equity side. When, talk through the process of of how many funds you're looking to evaluate there, uh, and, and and is there a sense of trying to find the best funds? You try to pick. Uh, are you, are you trying to do your own analysis of which are the funds that you want to track exposures to? Maybe talk through that process a little bit. Sure. So so. So trying to find the best one doesn't work. I wish it did. I would have a very different business model. I would come in and tell you that we only invest in the guys who go up. Um, be the consultant with the top quartile funds. <laughs> yeah, no, it's they're they, they're very good at picking the funds that were the top, were the top quartile. Um, so um, what we do is we take we take large pools. So we take forty or fifty funds, and generally they're the largest funds in the space. And what we're looking for is broad representation. You'll have some value guys in there, some growth guys, some emerging market guys, some sector specialists, um, uh, some quantitative guys, equity market neutral guys. It's, it's basically designed to be, you know, similarly, if you went and bought the S&P 500, the S&P 500 doesn't consist of 500, you know, tech stocks. I mean, it's maybe it's getting a little close to that, but, but um, uh, the, um, so we're looking for broad diversification and we're never trying to replicate any of those guys individually because they can change their mind. 
Um, but with a large pool, you're really looking to, um, and in that, in that case, you know, the way that we think about it is when these guys make $10 before fees, uh, clients often make about six of the 10 and we can often replicate somewhere between eight and nine of the 10 over time. So there are things that they can do that we won't be able to replicate in our, with our, you know, relatively straightforward approach. But if we're fee efficient and our trading costs are efficient, we'll often do, you know, maybe seven as opposed to six. Um, and so, again, it's the same idea. You want broad because, I mean, if you're if you're building a model portfolio, the last thing you want to do is say, I want a 10 percent allocation to equity long short. And if you had made that decision in the early 2010s, I guarantee you, you would have picked a value guy. And that guy didn't matter how good of a value stock picker he was. You had a massive value bet sitting in 10% of your portfolio, and you would have carried that for the next eight years and materially underperformed. So the answer is you wouldn't have had him. You would have gotten rid of him after two or three years. And, you know, that kind of picking a single fund, then having it not work out, then replacing it with another single fund and having it not worked out. People did that in the 2010s. People have learned that it's a huge waste of time. And even Morningstar wrote a great report last year about the liquid alt space um, where they basically said, you know, and there's actually a second report that said this kind of cycling of buying a fund that's been doing well and then writing it down and then replacing it is actually destroyed more than 100% of the fees that people would have earned investing in the space if they hadn't chased hot dots. Um, so there, there are a lot of structural issues. We've written a lot and spoken a lot about this, but basically, you know, the, the, the safest way to invest in the space is you try to get broad diversification and then you cut out fees and expenses as much as you can in order to incrementally outperform by cutting out fees as opposed to trying to pick the right guy because that definitely doesn't work. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation about how you know you could think about building these aggregate uh, strategies across a lot of different markets. We, we did a nice deep profile on equity hedge and managed futures. Um, Andrew, this has been a fantastic conversation. Anywhere people can, can stay in touch, how should they find uh, you in Dynamic Beta? So I'm quite loud on... Uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> so if you if you're interested in hearing updates on what's going on in the hedge fund world, uh, it's Andrew Beer on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, which is Andrew D Beer One uh, on Twitter. But we also have a website. Our firm is called Dynamic Beta Investments, and uh, you know we're, we're we're less diligent than I would like about updating the the our our, uh, our website, but. Um, but we love to be in an active dialogue with people about what, what they're seeing in this space. This has been a lot of fun talking to Andrew Beer. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.